Hey everyone, back again today to talk about Marx's idea of commodity fetishism. So this is coming out of the work of Capital, Volume 1 specifically. And before jumping into it, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can do that at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to help me out, you like, share, subscribe. For the most part, people who watch this are not subscribers, so subscribe if you are among those that aren't already. Um, if you want to help monetarily, you can do that via the links below. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads via the links or wherever you get podcasts. You know, make sure if you want to help me out to leave, you know, five stars and comment there. Uh, you know, that'd be great. I see all the comments and I, because I like to read what you have to say. And then without further ado, I don't waste any more of your time. Let me explain what Marx is on about with commodity fetishism. So he's using this term to attack political economists at the time. So this was in the, uh, I guess, late, mid to late 19th century, when he was writing against people like Ricardo and Smith, who he thought had a pretty unrealistic understanding about the economy, had a pretty unrealistic understanding of commodities. So just for the sake of argument, a commodity is a thing that is produced that is meant to be sold or exchanged for something else, pretty simply. So let's draw a distinction between someone living maybe in, you know, a kind of subsistence living who uh, design a kind of hammer that they can use for their work. That is not a commodity because they're the only ones going to be using it for their own need. Now fetishism is when a thing is bestowed with a value that isn't intrinsic to it itself. Rather, it is a value that is assumed of it, but that it actually doesn't have, but nevertheless has an effect as though it is real. So Marx says that the political economists at the time suffered from commodity fetishism. That is, they believed that there was something about commodities that made them legitimate or real, but for Marx, he's like, no, no, no. Commodities belong to a specific phase in human development, and therefore they cannot be dissociated from the social sphere from which they emanate. So in order to engage with commodities, we must not assume, as he says Ricardo and Smith do, we cannot assume that these objects house some kind of intrinsic commodity value, or to put it more simply, that they don't intrinsically have value, which makes total sense. No object in this world has value per se. I have, um, I, I'm looking right now at a, at a jazz guitar book that has a lot of value to me, but to many other people, it probably means nothing. In fact, there's nothing in this world that can be said to be universally valuable. It only exists contextually. So how does this all come about? Well, Marx, in his much very, very rigorous exploration about uh, capitalism and its emergence, at least considering it theoretically or speculatively, says, okay, the traditional economists believed in a thing called the labor theory of value. So the labor theory of value was the theory that an object's 
monetary or social value was directly related to the amount and intensity of labor put into it. So if you, let's say you were a production owner, you own the means of production for like a factory, you're going to charge, your, your commodity is going to be worth the amount that it took to pay for the labor to go into it, plus the raw resources, plus whatever profit you want to put on top of that which seems like, okay, fair enough, easy explanation. Commodities then can be traced to the labor put into them. But Marx says, he's like, well, what if it takes someone a really long time? Like, what if you have someone who's not really skilled making it? It's gonna take them longer. It'll probably cost you more to pay them because they spent more time. But that doesn't change the price of the thing because the thing's price is not actually determined by the labor and the resources. It is determined by the social relations that it enters, that exist outside of the realm of production. And, you know, in all of this, Marx wants to emphasize that the value of a commodity is really a mysterious thing. If I design a shoe and I were to get a famous person to, you know, endorse that shoe, suddenly that shoe is worth a, a lot more, but it's not like, its production didn't change, its uh, material composition didn't change, its use value didn't change, yet its value has changed, which demonstrates for Marx that there is no kind of implicit attachment between the value of a thing and the labor and resources that go into the production of that thing, nor is their value intrinsic within an object itself, because you can have one shoe that doesn't have someone's name attached to it, and then another shoe that has, you know, a famous person's name attached to it, and they are priced very differently, even though they had the same function. Now, he sets out to look at how this social field is constituted, because, you know, he just looks at the world historically, and he's like, commodities haven't always existed. So for me to just say, at, you know, me myself to just say that commodities change in social contexts implies a kind of consistency between different social contexts with people who recognize and appreciate the value of things as commodities, that is, as things that can be exchanged, things that don't necessarily have a use. So, in a kind of feudal dynamic, a serf might have no idea how uh, an object can attain value in the way that attaching a name to a shoe can attain value. It would seem totally arbitrary and not make sense to them. But for us, it makes absolute sense. So Marx is like, how does this social field get constituted to allow for the recognition of commodities? Well, he says that in order to look at that, we have to first look at labor and the things that labor produces. So I should have said this earlier on, this is not gonna be exhaustive of the entire uh, conversation here. It's only gonna be a pretty significant part of it, but there are all, there are so many other intricacies that I'm just not gonna be able to cover here. So get back to it. In terms of labor and the things that labor produces, or we have to engage with these two different fields in order to understand the emergence of the social field. So let's start with labor. He divides labor into concrete and abstract labor. So concrete labor 
is the individual instances of labor. The tailor who makes a certain set of clothing or, you know, the, um, the blacksmith who makes uh, a horseshoe or, or whatever. These individual acts of labor that don't have any real resemblance to one another. They are by and large different things, two different people that might have nothing in common uh, aside from the fact that they both have sore hands at the end of the day, maybe. Now he contrasts that with abstract labor. And abstract labor emerges at the point that all laboring, all concrete laboring, so all different acts of laboring, can suddenly be subsumed under the category of labor in its own right. So suddenly the tailor in relation to the um, blacksmith have a kind of coordinated uh, moniker attached to them as a laborer. Now, of course, this is intensified in a world in which there are workers for a person who doesn't work, but who owns the means of production, in which case that there's a kind of homogenization of all those people into a laboring class, you know, the proletarian. So under this kind of homogenization, what we can see is the very easy um, exchange of workers in different places. And of course, you get into the conversation here about unskilled versus skilled labor, how uh, migrating worker patterns are meant not you know, to satisfy worldly or social needs, but just for people to exist as laborers because that's how they've been kind of programmed to some extent. And it is in that that we see the emergence of a kind of social recognition or the opening up of a social dynamic between people because of their now mutual understanding or their mutual recognition as laborers that was otherwise or previously kind of foreclosed to them. Now let's consider the objects made. So if I'm a concrete laborer, or if I consider uh, concrete labor, I produce, or if I'm a blacksmith, I produce a horseshoe. That horseshoe might have, you know, some purpose for someone down the road for me or for myself. You know, it's probably a better example for myself. Um, and it doesn't really have much of an attachment to the person selling milk down the road or anything like that. But when we enter a phase in which objects can be exchanged with other objects, suddenly we enter into a realm where objects can take on a value that is separate from their kind of historical, uh, from, the, from their history, from the conditions that made them possible and the resources that went into making them. So the example, the kind of famous example that Mark, Marx gives is that 20 sheets of linen is equal to one coat. And then he continues this and he says, well, 20 pounds of coffee is equal to one coat as well. And 40 pounds of tea is equal to one coat. And he gives all these different uh, kind of equations here. So he says, look, under this framework, what we have is suddenly a kind of communication between objects. You have sheets of linen that communicate with coats. You have uh, tea that communicates with coats. You have uh, coffee that communicates with coats. And with that is formed a general equivalence around the coat where the coat comes to stand for all of these other things. So then you can flip the equation and say, well, if all of these things are equal to the coat, then they must all be equal to one another. Now you get other kinds of exchange occurring that gives things a certain value 
as exchange. Now we move from that phase into the emergence of a kind of general physical equivalent like gold or silver that comes to stand in for everything else. Now that doesn't just happen haphazardly. It is a direct consequence of the emerging social relations between objects, where these objects that are being exchanged among one another are viewed almost as though they're exchanged, like communicating humans, as though they are things in themselves that have value in their own right. Because of course, 20 sheets of linen is equal to one coat. Like that's just what things are worth. And it is at this point that it opens the door for a misrecognition of the forces at play that give life to commodities as objects to be exchanged. And that is why Marx says that Ricardo and Smith fall prey to commodity fetishism because they look at all these relations and they think, well, of course that's natural. Of course one coat equals that. They must have intrinsic value or their value is directly related to the, um, you know, the labor that went into them. So because of that, Marx and Ricardo, in naturalizing it, can trace the lineage of like capitalism back through human history. And they say, well, you know, when you had these examples of concrete labor, people building things, people making things with their bare hands, uh, artisans and whatnot, they were producing these commodities that people would want, which would explain like royalty having, you know, certain esoteric uh, produced things for themselves because they had intrinsic value. But Marx is like, no, they only are able to attain a certain commodified exchangeable value is when they we have entered socially into a dynamic in which labor and the products of that labor become socialized and they themselves enter into social relations among themselves, whereas previously two laborers didn't necessarily have anything in common and two objects didn't have anything necessarily in common, except that maybe they would, you know, some kind of forced interaction would occur. Now all of this undoubtedly gets compounded with the introduction of like paper money, for example, that just makes uh, equivalents so much easier, but then also so much more fragile because it moves itself away from a socially recognizable, um, tangible object like gold or silver, not to say that that's any better, but it does move us away from that into a more speculative, uncertain realm that might potentially have pretty devastating consequences. So to kind of reiterate, commodity fetishism is the moment in which a commodity is assumed to have a kind of natural quality or its value is considered natural, more or less. So to say a little bit more about money, uh, money is a kind of universal equivalent, right? It is what allows things to be exchanged without considering you know, the varying social dynamics. Like for some people, they might not view linen as uh, useful as, as another group of people or you know, coats or whatever. So money allows that to I guess, to iron out all those differences. Now, Marx says that this isn't coincidental because in the transition from concrete to abstract labor, what we see are the ironing out, or is the ironing out of all the differences between people, essentially, as laborers. They become these kind of 
wage-earning laborers that removes them from their context in favor of these kinds of uh, this kind of homogenizing enterprise. And we see the same thing happening when objects become objects of exchange. They lose their kind of singular value in favor of their entering into this homogenous exchange field. So then of course, of course we're geared towards this entering of a universal equivalent to make sense of all these things because it's just where it was headed. So he says that unlike what Smith and Ricardo have to say, money was not brought down almost from God as though, or from, you know, humanity's uh, undying rationality. It's not as though humans were like, God, you know what would make exchange easier? If we had a universal equivalent like money. Marx is like, no, money was the natural progression, the natural uh, endpoint, well, endpoint in, in capitalism, the, the point that it would lead to. Because of its trajectory through the entering into these social dynamics, these kind of social spheres that ironed out differences, leading or setting the stage for the introduction of such a universal equivalent. And that's more or less it. If I said anything wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Uh, if anyone has anything they'd like to include, I would also love to hear about it. Uh, if you like what I did here, like, share, subscribe, and uh, catch you next time. Take care.